You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. A Florida water treatment plant sustains a cyber attack. The hack was successful. The sabotage wasn't. A new malware strain is associated with Chinese intelligence services. Ben Yellen tracks a surveillance plane whose funding has fallen. Our guest is Colonel Stephen Hamilton from the Army Cyber Institute at West Point. And Huawei's CEO says, sure, he'd take a call from President Biden. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. Late yesterday, the sheriff of Pinellas County, Florida, said that his office was investigating an attempt on Friday to alter chemicals introduced into the city of Oldsmar's water supply. An unknown party had remotely accessed the water utility's control systems and directed that the amount of sodium hydroxide be increased by a factor of 100, from the safe intended concentration of 100 parts per million to a dangerous 11,100 parts per million. A treatment plant operator noticed the change and immediately corrected it. The Tampa Bay Times says authorities have some leads, but that no arrests have been made. Sodium hydroxide, familiarly known as lye or caustic soda, is a strong base that's the principal ingredient in many paint stripping and drain opening products and, less scarily, in many soaps. It's used in small quantities to regulate the acidity of drinking water, and in even smaller quantities it's used in cooking, curing olives, preparing lutefisk, baking German pretzels, and so on. But it's a highly caustic and dangerous chemical in high concentrations, and so this is a serious attack that could have had lethal consequences. Pinellas County officials stressed that there was no danger, that it would have taken 24 to 36 hours before the sodium hydroxide concentration reached dangerous levels, but the incident is nonetheless a frightening one. Despite a fair amount of tweeting and woofing about acts of war and so on, there's been no attribution of the attack. The operator who stopped the attack noticed something was amiss when his mouse cursor began moving. Orge Orquiles tweeted a lesson from the world of penetration testing. Quote, The easiest way to get caught as a red teamer is to move someone's mouse. Nothing freaks people out more than their mouse moving when they aren't touching it. It's a psychological thing. Kevin Collier thinks this suggests that the attacker is probably more skid than mastermind, tweeting... We know almost nothing about who they are, but here's a strong indication this wasn't a masterminded plan. That's not necessarily reassuring, he added. Is it comforting to know this probably wasn't some Russian master plan to poison some Floridians? Or more disturbing to think this is how close an amateur could get? End quote. It is, however, important to emphasize that nothing is publicly known so far about who may have attempted the attack, It's also worth remembering that the simplicity of an attack, its ease of execution, says little more than that there's a broad range of threat actors who could have accomplished it. In this case, that ranges from a failed-to-launch skid in the parents' basement all the way to a nation-state's espionage or military services, 
from a knucklehead down the block doing something for the lulls up to one of Huggy Bear's cunning brood. The attacker is believed to have obtained access to the water treatment plant's TeamViewer software, Wired reports, adding that the city disenabled TeamViewer shortly after it noticed the attack. TeamViewer is also relatively easy to use, and it can be accessed with stolen credentials, and some have seen this as another indication that the attack was not a sophisticated one. Bryson Bort, founder and CEO of Scythe, commented in an email that, quote, TeamViewer is a common remote desktop protocol solution in ICS, and the water attack was most likely simple access with stolen credentials. Using the software means everything is visible to the user, hence the operator saw the mouse move and settings changed. Who and why is still the question. End quote. What have other control system attacks looked like? Last spring, Israeli authorities warned that Iranian operators made an attempt on water treatment and wastewater facilities in two rural districts in Israel. They weren't fully successful. The Council of Foreign Relations has a summary of that incident on its site. There was another incident in which the controls of a small flood control dam in Rye, New York, were remotely accessed. In 2013, the Bowman Street Dam's controls were accessed. The U.S. would ultimately indict an Iranian cyber operator for that action. Many have commented that leaving the supervisory controls of a water treatment system open to remote access is extraordinarily risky. See, for example, comments to that effect by TechCrunch's Zach Whitaker. Such systems had long been relatively immune to cyber attack because their age and the legacy control systems they employed effectively air-gapped them. Austin Burgless is former head of FBI New York Cyber and currently global head of professional services at Blue Voyant. He offered some perspective, quote, Digitization and IoT expansion have allowed for previously isolated infrastructure to be remotely accessed. For example, water and utilities need to balance security while allowing operators the ability to remotely access treatment plant SCADA systems from phones, work, and computers in order to react to alarms and respond to incidents without having to be physically on site, end quote. As was the case with the Florida incident, no real harm was done by the Bowman Street Dam hack. Burglis thinks it likely that the attack on the small sluice gate in Rye just afforded a proving ground to test capabilities and techniques. And again, when asked about possible attribution of the Oldsmar attack, he sensibly said simply, too early to tell. Drago's CEO Robert M. Lee also cautioned against both premature speculation about attribution and thinking that a challenge like this could be addressed with any single simple solution. It's a systemic problem with many interdependent aspects. Quote, hiring, workforce development, culture shifts, working within national priorities and regulations, state and local regulations, resourcing other areas that are organizational challenges, modernizing infrastructure beyond cyber, and so on, there's not one easy answer, tech or not, end quote. It's troubling, for example, to think that in this case, the safety of a water supply depended upon one watchstander happening to notice that something was briefly unusual on his screen. Dragos has published a set of considerations and recommendations other utilities might well consider, a sensible mix of suggestions for blocking remote access, and improving user training. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 published this morning an account of a polymorphic malicious shellcode they're calling Bendy Bear. 
They associate the code with the activities of Black Tech, a threat actor widely believed to be run by Chinese intelligence services. Bendy Bear has some similarities with the Water Bear family of malware in use since 2009. Huawei CEO Ren Zhengfei has said, CNBC reports, that he would welcome a phone call from U.S. President Biden, one sovereign to another. And, just as it is with handshakes, the junior sovereign would call upon the senior sovereign. They could talk about international cooperation and mutually beneficial development and stuff. The Army Cyber Institute at West Point, the ACI, was created to provide the U.S. Army with research on cyber-related challenges and to provide a mechanism for collaboration between the government's military branches and the private sector. To learn more about their mission, I checked in with ACI's Chief of Staff and Technical Director, Colonel Stephen Hamilton. It was started at West Point in 2012, and um, the idea was, it was before we had the cyber branch, we were, the Army was trying to get its handle around how to employ cyber. And um, the Institute was stood up here by, uh, I, th- I believe it was General Ordierno uh, when he was the uh, Chief of Staff of the Army. And uh, the idea was to harness some of the intellectual power and capital at West Point to be able to put toward this difficult problem that, that a lot of Army leaders just didn't have awareness of and didn't understand because we were still trying to figure it out. So... Uh, so it was created in 2012 with a small team. It was kind of born out of the electrical engineering and computer science department, which used to be have this um, organization called the ITOC, the Information Technology and Operations Center. So it was born out of that. That's where some of the personnel came from. And then um, we've slowly built it up over the years, and it's it's become its own uh, standalone entity outside of a department. We do have a few uh, personnel that teach within the departments at West Point. But we're a standalone organization that that reports directly to the superintendent, so we don't fall under the dean's office. And what role does it play now in terms of uh, the interaction with the cadets and the staff there at West Point? Uh, what what is the Army Cyber Institute's place there? So uh, we have uh, we're kind of multifaceted. So with, with regards to West Point, um, as I said, we do teach and we also sponsor uh, various projects. We sometimes work with capstone projects that the cadets work on. Um, but but in the big army uh, scheme, if you look at uh, the cyber organizations, there's Army Cyber Command, which is the uh, cyber force that we have. Then we also have the Army Cyber uh, Center of Excellence, which is our the the training piece. So so the initial training that cyber operators get when they come into the army or, or when they get commissioned uh, from here, from even from West Point. So once they get the training, then they go into Army Cyber Command from there. Uh, we fall outside of both of those organizations. And the idea is that while CCOE is actually doing the training and the R cyber is actually conducting the operations, we're outside of both of those realms so that we can kind of look ahead and figure out what are strategic problems, what are things that, that need to be solved that just can't be solved by somebody who's, if you were to say, in the fight. So you think of the, the cyber operators, they're doing the day-to-day mission. We're not conducting cyber operations from here. Instead, we're looking out like what are things that we need to be researching and informing the Army on to better enable us to be prepared in the future. 
For folks who want to learn more about what you're up to, if I'm thinking of some of our listeners who may be parts of other organizations, academic institutions or otherwise, what's the best way for them to reach out? If they go to our, our website, that would be one one way, and they could reach out um, on there, um, which is uh, cyber.army.mil. And um, we have a pretty good um, PAO presence. Our, our, our PAO is real good about um, getting us on social media. So I think they, that we have a Facebook and a uh, Twitter account as well. They can, they can follow us there and get information. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely welcome um, industry partners if they, if they have any interest in working with us. Um, in fact, yesterday we just had a call with FireEye to uh, discuss opportunities to partner with them. So yeah, we're, we're actively looking at, you know, just trying to figure out what is, what is the latest, what's the, what's the things we need to be letting the future leaders know, which is our cadets here, and then what is it that we need to be talking to the Army directly about. So we, we can filter all that out and, and, and get people connected the right way so we can advance our mission. That's Colonel Stephen Hamilton from the Army Cyber Institute at West Point. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. You and I have been, uh, I would say, perhaps obsessively tracking this whole story about the surveillance plane that flies over Baltimore. Yes, obsessively, uh, the Cessna, definitely. <laughs> the Cessna eye in the sky. Uh, and what that could mean to privacy and surveillance and, and uh, all those things. Interesting article here from the Baltimore Sun. It's titled, Texas Philanthropists Say They're Backing Out of Financing Surveillance Plane Technology That Flew Over Baltimore. What's going on here, Ben? Yeah, so I think this might be the coda, the end note to the era of the surveillance Cessna in Baltimore City. So the first thing that happened was that the new mayor of Baltimore, Brandon Scott, has always been opposed to this program. He was when he was president of the uh, Baltimore City Council. So he decided to discontinue this program after its two trial runs, saying, you know, hmm. not only was this program, did this program potentially produce constitutional concerns, but also most crimes in Baltimore happen at night, 
when these planes are not flying uh, uh, above the city. What this article gets at is the philanthropists uh, from Texas who funded uh, this surveillance system, this network, are backing out of financing this type of technology. And this presents some problems. These philanthropists were named uh, Laura and John Arnold. Uh, They are billionaires. They had set up Arnold Ventures in Texas to help support these programs. Uh, And even though this surveillance program is being discontinued in Baltimore City, the founder of this program, a former military guy uh, named uh, Ross McNutt, is trying to introduce it in other high-crime cities across the country, including St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and even though St. Louis is, was about to vote on whether to adopt, at least for a trial run, the surveillance system, uh, the Arnold Ventures has now pulled the rug out in terms of monetary support. So Mr. McNutt is going to have to look elsewhere, uh, perhaps other venture capitalists, uh, billionaires with a lot of money who are willing to uh, to fund this program. But this potentially... Mm-hmm in my view, could be the death knell for uh, the aerial surveillance system. It certainly already has been in Baltimore, and it'll be interesting to see if it is across the country as well. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, they they did an audit of this system. Uh, it was an audit uh, from the Policing Project of New York University. So they did an independent audit, and um, one of the things they note in this article is the audit also found police relied on supplemental reports to justify following suspects beyond the point of an initial crime. It said that police used the planes to track suspects long after the initial crime, sometimes for multiple days, which was not approved by the initial agreement. So it's kind of that um, that thing you and I talk about when it comes to the, the, the slippery slope of surveillance, where yes. if you give someone a tool that, that enables them to do something— they're going to uh, do it. And you agree upon well you agree upon a set of guidelines, guardrails if you will. Uh so often is the case that they press against those guardrails or step right over them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh and you know, this is certainly something that's foreseeable. Obviously, law enforcement is going to benefit from this technology, but if it exists and if there isn't proper oversight and if the court system moves slowly as it relates to particular cases, then it certainly is ripe for misuse or potentially uh, abuse. So that's why you Mm -hmm. just have to be very careful before you're willing as any jurisdiction to employ this type of tool because, you know, there's always going to be that potential that it's going to be used beyond the original scope of of authorization. What do you think about the the process here? I mean, the outcome that somebody had an idea, they, they got someone to fund that idea, the idea was tried, uh, it turned out to not be successful. The people who it was supposed to benefit have said, we're not really interested in that. The funding gets pulled. I mean, did, did things play out in the way that they're supposed to? In some ways, yes. Um, you know, this this was adopted through a democratic process, at least in Baltimore City. I mean, it was a decision that was made by elected leaders. So it's not like mm-hmm. Mr. McNutt just started flying the plane himself. Um, right, right, right. You know, there there is something that maybe rubs me the wrong way about billionaires that are not from the jurisdiction funding a project, you know, where a city can potentially spy on its citizen, uh, its citizens. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's a flaw in the process or just sort of something that uh, instinctively makes me a little bit skeptical, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. 
All right. Well, if you're interested, the article is uh, over in the uh, Baltimore Sun, written by Emily Apilo. Uh, it's Texas philanthropists say they're backing out of financing surveillance plane technology that flew over Baltimore. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. We'll save you time and keep you informed. Keep your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.